0: Have you ever wanted to see for yourself what the Bible has to say? Well, you've come to the right place. Join me, Pastor Tom Marsus and Vicar Aidan Moon as we explore the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and provide you some landmarks and guideposts along the way. Welcome to Trek Through the Scriptures. Welcome to Trek Through the Scriptures, episode 13, Kings for Israel. My name is Pastor Tom Marsa, senior pastor at Zion Lutheran Church. I'm Vicar Aidan Moon. And this week, uh, we're really diving into 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 27, as we really review and get into what's happening now, this transition period between the judges and the kings of Israel. Yeah, we've seen how during
1: the period of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, there was no king. There was no centralized authority, even though it should have been God for the people of Israel. They weren't listening to God. They weren't following his law. They were uh, out of step with that. And so there was this cycle of sin that we saw with the judges, and it was um, things were not working well for Israel. And so now we move into this transition period, and really First and Second Samuel are, are one unit. Um, Samuel is one longer story that's broken down into these two scrolls, and there we're focusing in in these books on on three main characters. We we just started um, started first Samuel last week actually, but uh, we really just had time to talk about Judges and Ruth in
0: our last podcast. So we'll talk about the whole book today. What's very interesting is if you remember all the way back with the calling of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and how Abraham was going to have a great nation and and all these uh, descendants, they were to be set apart as different than those around them. And yet now we see here at the end of Judges as we're beginning to the time of kings, they wanted to have a king like everybody else. And it's interesting because God was setting apart a being different and yet Even more now, the people wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted to have a king just like everybody else.
1: Yeah, and the way the book frames it, it's like this isn't really a good thing. At the same time, God allows it and even uses it. He does warn them about the downsides and the negative things about having a king, Um, but even it foreshadows... Ultimately, the the perfect King, um, Christ, who brings in the kingdom of God on earth and kind of melds together the kingship of Israel and God's reign um, over His people. So, so it is that kind of double double-edged sword on some level. Uh, the people of Israel want something that's not necessarily going to be good for them. Um, they want it because the other nations have it. You know that kind of thing. Why why can't we have it? The other nations have kings. And yet God is gonna use that anyway. Um, And we'll have some great stories
0: and big picture ideas that come out of that. Now, throughout the book of 1 Samuel, uh, there are really three main characters, the prophet Samuel, uh, obviously the book uh, named after him, the first king of Israel, Saul, and also King David. And we're being introduced and we see how the lives of all three are really interwoven throughout this book. In chapter three, which we read last week, we see the call of Samuel as a prophet and as a judge uh, into God's purpose in this time of change that is happening within his people. And so Samuel, we see specifically chosen by God, having both of these roles, both as prophet and as judge. So he's he's a political
1: figure in the sense that he's a judge. He's, he's got some, some earthly power, but he's also speaking for God. And, and that's important because he is then the one that the people of Israel come to with their demand for a king. And he's there somewhat in the background for a good portion of the book, but he's there uh, influencing the way things move between Saul and being a, a, a spokesperson for God to Saul, and then later on for David, um, even though obviously uh, as we get through, you'll see Samuel doesn't actually live the whole time of the book of First and Second Samuel, so he's not around the whole time. But he's a very important figure,
0: and he he's the figure of transition in this time. As we're introduced to the first king of Israel, Saul, what's very interesting, there's a warning against pride. One of the things that we often hear is absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when someone is king, in many ways, they have absolute power and control. And so Saul, the very first king, was warned against that possible pride. And we see that later as being a challenge for him, very much so. And early on in his reign, as you read through, he really was somewhat the perfect king. He was listening to Samuel. He was doing as God commanded him. But like many kings or many absolute rulers, uh, we see more and more these deep character flaws that will ultimately disqualify not only him, but his family ruling after him. And it's interesting as you read through Samuel, uh, how he's, Saul is haunted by this evil spirit. And he is, becomes very much uh, concerned about those around him. Like he's always worried who's after him, what's happening. And David becomes this uh, foil, so to speak, for Saul, because uh, at first he welcomes in David, but then ultimately he... He sees David hunting him, going after him, or at least the idea that he is hunting him when David's not hunting him, and then ultimately is being rejected by God. And so that transitions us into the second king of Israel.
1: Yeah. And so David, David and Saul's stories overlap. So you sort of see um, Saul's ascent a to power, so you see his his influence grow. Some victories, some positive things. He's this great guy. He's he's handsome, and everybody likes him. He's kind of seen as a a good figure to lead, and uh, the kind of guy that people would automatically go, yeah, that's a good leader type. And so you see the his rise, and then right about the peak of that, and after he is being, um, well, after he's rejected by God for a few different things that you'll see in the reading is when David shows up on the scene. And so you see David's rise happening is the same time as Saul's fall. Um, Saul is having this decline throughout the, the second part of the book, eventually leading to his death. And David is rising, both in his influence, in his uh, experience and his victories in war, all these different things. And he has, uh, there's there's a few really pivotal moments. One is that he's, he's chosen as the youngest of a big family. He's not the greatest guy. It's not, there, you have this contrast between Saul, who looks great and is who everybody would choose, and David, who is the runt of the litter. So there's a little bit of that. Um, and then you have the story of how he kills Goliath, which is another, I mean, David and Goliath is, is synonymous with the underdog, um, and the whole idea of, you know, the little guy beating out the, the big obvious winner. That's something that even people reference today. So you see that picture in David's whole life, um, as he's, he's not the one that would instantly be chosen but God actually
0: shows his power through using this this little guy this underdog and God choosing God using that's really something that's an overall theme we see throughout scripture and it really leads to this complex complex relationship between Saul and David which is very interesting to follow throughout the book of Samuel here, because we see how the lives of King Saul and ultimately uh, King David later, how they're interwoven, how David marries one of Saul's daughter, this relationship between David and Jonathan, uh, which uh, perplexes Saul, and yet Uh, It shows God's action, God's care, and God's direction that David is protected, and how David, as a man after God's own heart, continues to protect the king, King Saul, even when Saul doesn't deserve that protection. He continues to protect him, not taking Saul's life when he has the opportunity, but doing as God would have him do nevertheless. And you do see David's humility in recognizing that he only has the
1: the effect he has because God has chosen him, because God is working through him. David models this kind of humility and trust where Saul is modeling jealousy and pride and, and being having this kind of self-centered, forgetting that God is the one who chose him in the first place. And so you do see this contrast, especially in the second part of 1 Samuel. And yeah, like you said, this it almost reads kind of soap opera-y in the sense that you have these uh, intertwined family things and um, Saul seems to just hate David one moment and then he's apologetic the next and it's back and forth. You see someone who is um, definitely the villain by the end of the story, but also is a, a sympathetic character for Saul. Saul is a sympathetic character because he's he's really tormented by his own demons, literally. And uh, by the end of the story, you see this, he's a very tragic figure. You're not, you're not necessarily happy to see him go, even in the sense that
0: uh, it's good for Israel when he, his reign is over. As we go through the book... You really need to see how these three characters, Samuel, Saul, and David, interact with one another. And to really understand the book of 1 Samuel, you have to see how Samuel, Saul, and David are working together, Mm -hmm. sometimes working against each other, and how that's happening. But there's also other minor characters that we need to understand. One would be Hannah, Samuel's mother, and her faithfulness, even in the midst of seeming that she was not going to have children, and how God would use Hannah— to bring about Samuel, who would be the last great judge and prophet for the people, and also understanding the Philistines. We've seen the Philistines earlier with uh, in the book of Judges with Samson. Yeah,
1: the Philistines are interesting because they're, they're figures that we don't know a whole lot about from the Bible, but there's other information. They're probably one of the peoples that we know the most about from from archaeology and other aspects of history. And they do form one of the most significant enemies for the Israelites from the later part of Judges all the way through First um, and Second Samuel. They were, they're, they're sort of this seen as this very powerful enemy uh they were from somewhere in the aegean area maybe the island of crete somewhere out there in the mediterranean they were known as the sea peoples um one of the sea peoples in that area they even attempted to invade egypt at one point which tells you about their general power um if you if you're familiar with other eras of history uh, maybe a little bit more recent in medieval times the dark ages um they're almost comparable to maybe like the vikings they were these these raiders that would come out of nowhere, they would come in their ships, they were a, a seafaring people. And you think, we've talked about this a little bit before, for the Israelites, the sea represented chaos and darkness. And so the idea of these people who come out of the sea in their boats and are raiding and destroying um, the Philistines were pretty uh, evil figures for them. And uh, they had these five cities that were right on the coast. Uh, you can find these on most of those biblical maps. You've got Gaza and Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron, um, those five cities. And you, if you're uh, reading through the story, you'll notice that Goliath is from Gath, um, so Goliath, that the Philistine hero that David kills um, is from there. So the Philistines form this sort of behind the scenes and then in certain points, a uh, main foil. They're not, they don't, they're not characterized a whole lot because other than Goliath, you don't get a whole lot of detail. Mostly it's like you said, we have the three main characters. They're the ones that are interacting, but the Philistines kind of operate as, as a foil to all of them and to the people of Israel throughout the book.
0: And one other person that's pretty significant that is a minor character and yet impacting the story is Saul's son, Jonathan. Uh, He befriends David. We see how David and Jonathan are such special friends, even though David will one day be king and Jonathan is aware of this, They have this special relationship. Jonathan protects David from the anger of his father, Saul, and he is another warrior that we also see acting against the Philistines. But it's really that personal relationship between Jonathan and David that's very interesting as you read through the book to see how in the midst of this terrible situation that still they are able to maintain their friendship and God is able to work through this relationship in protecting ultimately King David.
1: There's a lot of different pictures we get of how God's love works um, in Scripture, whether it's parent-child relationships or husband-wife relationships, like different pictures of that. And and David and Jonathan give that element of friendship imagery, um, that imagery of faithfulness, even when it doesn't benefit uh, us personally. And uh, Jonathan is a pretty unique picture of that deep friendship that, that can be between um, friends to the degree almost of brotherhood. Uh, it's a pretty pretty powerful image. And even again, when his own father is trying to hunt down David, um, seeking to take his life, Jonathan remains an
0: advocate for David. And as you read through the book this week of 1 Samuel, uh, the first seven chapters are seen as one unit and then 8 to 10, as Saul is chosen as king, and then chapters 11 all the way through 31, we see Saul starting to spiral out of his relationship with God, contrasted to David as David is rising in power, uh, both as a warrior and having a following of the people, and how Saul continues to hunt him, and yet how God continues to protect him, and setting up the next chapter when David will ultimately become king, and that's really one of the themes throughout both 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and that is the kingly office. We're going to see that one greater than Moses who will also be a greater king for Israel, which kind of gives us a picture coming up later in the New Testament.
1: Yeah, it's there's no like one to one with with Christ and p- things in the Old Testament in the sense that Jesus doesn't match up exactly with any figure, but he in the, they're all smaller pictures. Um, these figures like Moses, like Joshua, like Samuel are all are all pictures of part of what. Jesus will do, and who He will be. Um, Samuel, for example, is a judge; he's a ruler, and he's a prophet, um, and he kind of fulfills a priestly role as well. We can see all of those roles as prophet, priest, uh, showing up in Christ. And then David, as a king, is is showing that as well. Um, Jesus is referenced as the son of David a lot in the new testament very intentionally um as he is carrying out that kingly office as the ruler the one who's bringing again like i said earlier bringing god's rule that that perfect rule of god that was intended and uh, a human a human ruler together in one person so that's that's a theme and that we we use the word messiah to describe jesus and that's a reference back to that action of anointing anointed one is what messiah means and you'll see that in here uh, when we read about david and him being chosen that's what samuel does he anoints him with oil he pours the oil over his head um, as a sign to point towards that office that he is being chosen for by god and so the messiah the anointed one is the one who will ultimately fulfill that role who will
0: be the greatest anointed one. As we uh, draw to a close then in our look at 1 Samuel this week, be reminded that the ultimate king will be Jesus Christ. And yes, he is the physical descendant of King David, but more than just the physical descendant of David, he also has that spiritual connection of God's chosen one, sending for not only the physical sons and daughters of uh, Israel but also now the spiritual sons and daughters of Israel, and that would include us today. Today, So as you read through Samuel, see that connectedness uh, through to the New Testament, but also that interconnectedness between all three of the main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David, as you draw the to a close. May the Lord bless your reading this week, and we'll speak to you again next week in our next episode of Trek Through the Scriptures. Lord's blessings.
1: Every week, we have a chance to gather here at Zion and discuss some of the readings from the past week, some questions that might have come up. And every week, there's inevitably a few different questions about certain details in the text that we've studied. This last week, as we went through the book of Judges and the book of Ruth, we had a question specifically about Ruth chapter 3. In Ruth chapter 3, you have this little event where uh, Ruth gets dressed up goes and finds Boaz on his threshing floor. And while he's sleeping, she uncovers his feet, this kind of odd little event. And then he wakes up and they have this conversation. She essentially proposes marriage to him. He accepts. And then they go on to the next stage of the story. Um, Someone had asked, what's the significance of uncovering the feet? This was a question that I initially didn't have a good answer for. Uh, After a little bit of research, some study in a couple of different books, this significance relates to an image of marriage that shows up a few different places in the Old Testament. And this image is of the husband covering the bride with his cloak. Um, This is an image used of God and his people Israel. Um, kind of this metaphorical image of husband and wife that shows up a few different places in the Old Testament. And here um, by uncovering Boaz feet, and then the request that Ruth makes um, when he wakes up, she says, uh, this is in chapter three, verse nine. She asks him, she says, I am Ruth, your servant. She asks him, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. So she's essentially asking for him to be the redeemer of her, of her mother-in-law, Naomi, um, to buy back the land, to take on the role as her husband. So it is a marriage proposal, essentially. And it gives him then the opportunity to, as it says, spread your wings or your cloak over her uh, as a symbol of marriage. So it's, it's a... It might seem a little bit odd as a marriage proposal to us. It's not the imagery we would typically associate with it. The uncovering of the feet and then the opportunity for him to cover her with his cloak is a symbolic image of the request of marriage. And as the story goes on after this, we see that Boaz accepts and then... He also makes sure he's going to carry out the rest of the legal requirements. That's why the next thing he does is goes and finds the closer relative who actually has the right to the land. But all along, um, Boaz has accepted Ruth's request to protect her, to bring her under his cloak, under his protection, under his uh, responsibility as her husband to care for her. And that's the imagery that we see in this section of Ruth chapter three.
2: Thanks for joining us on our Trek Through the Scriptures this week. This podcast is a ministry of Zion Lutheran Church in Bismarck, North Dakota. To contact us, learn more, or for more resources on our journey this year, please visit ZionBismarck.org or find us on social media. This podcast was made possible by a grant from Lutheran Church Extension Fund. We thank them for their support. Please join me in prayer as we begin our new week. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time as we continue our exploration of God's story in the scriptures. God bless your reading this week.